0: Assalamu alaikum, welcome to the Progeny Podcast. Today my guest is Madiha Reza. Madiha is the Senior Global Communications Officer at the International Rescue Committee, where her portfolio consists of 23 countries, including some Africa, as well as Yemen. She has worked with a variety of international NGOs, including United Nations Association, Islamic Relief, Swedish development advisors, and Muslim aid. In addition, Madiha has valuable on the ground experience and has visited many countries affected by war, disease, or natural disaster. In the last few years, she has worked in Greece during the refugee crisis. She visited Mosul in Iraq two days after liberation, and Syria multiple times, as well as the Jordanian and Lebanese refugee camps. Madiha, thank you for joining the progeny. It's good to have you. As salamu
1: alaikum. salam. Thank you for having me.
0: Um there's a lot to talk about, inshallah, in today's podcast. Um first a bit about your background, um, where you grew up. So I grew up here in the UK,
1: uh, in a small town called Northwood in northwest London. Um I have four elder sisters, um two parents, alhamdulillah. Um Yeah, and spent my whole life here in in, in the UK um, until I moved to Sweden in 2015 for two years. I came back from Sweden in 2017 and been here since then and I'm moving to Nairobi in two weeks.
0: (laughs) MashaAllah. Your line of work um, is quite interesting, the path you chose after your degree. Um, Of course, we know as Muslims we are told that one of the best deeds to do is to offer charity. Um, Why did you choose this path?
1: I think that's exactly it. I mean, when I was doing my A-levels and I saw the sort of level of poverty and destruction around the world, um, there's sort of one of two paths I could have chosen, I guess, you know, my my family are all bankers. I could have gone down that path and, you know, earned lots of money and given it to charity or I could have chosen the other route of being more hands-on um and working on grassroots grassroots level to try and um, tackle the issues i was seeing on the news or around the world or when i was traveling with my family um, and that's the route i chose to go down um i think i took that inspiration from my from my mum, who always told me examples of how when she uh, grew up in what is now bangladesh she used to be east pakistan at the time um she would always invite people who were off the streets um, over to dinner and she would just tell her mom that mum invited five people who are homeless to come and eat with us today. Um, so stories like that were always really inspiring. And um, I felt like go- going into that line of work uh, would have been able to help me be more hands on um, and be more sort of responsive on a frontline basis. And it's I'm very, very blessed to be able to have a career which is which is so purposeful because then it doesn't feel like a career. It doesn't feel like a job. Um And so you know as you said we're very much encouraged um by religion by the alphabet to to be charitable and um help the most the less fortunate um and i guess i I feel like it's a sense of duty almost um so yeah very very blessed and and that's the reason why i chose to go down that path
0: you know in, in the introduction i mentioned you visited 23 countries just for 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 aid and help and support
1: No, that uh, my portfolio consists
0: consists of of uh, twenty three countries. Twenty three countries. So, for 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 someone maybe who's a Muslim and from a from a Muslim background, how did your family support you, or were they supportive? Were they, you know, might be difficult maybe for someone to say, "No, I'm going to let my daughter travel for 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 sometimes long periods." I'm guessing
1: a couple of weeks Uh, at a time. Yeah,
0: yeah. How how did they take that?
1: So I get, asked, I get asked that question a lot, actually. Um, you know, I think my my parents, alhamdulillah, are very, very, very supportive. I think um, they understand that this is my passion. Um, they understand that I don't, you know, I always go with a... I've got security training, for example. I don't go into... Although I do go into sort of war zones and risky countries, mm. me being a woman or, or female has not made a difference to them because um, I've explained to them and I explain to many people that me being a woman and being able to be on the ground um, is super advantageous because um, it's always women that are more affected by war and disaster. Um, It's always women that are exploited or abused when they have to flee from conflict or disasters. And so being a woman aid worker is different to being a a man um, because the the sort of comfort that I'm able to provide or the conversations I'm I'm able to have with these women that are affected, like, for example, you mentioned that I had been to Mosul two days after liberation, and I'd met all of these Yazidi women, for example, or I'd met all these um, hundreds of displaced women from different parts of Iraq in um, in southern Mosul, in uh, Hammam al-, 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 al Camp in southern Mosul, and, you know, they're very conservative societies. So, the you know, the way in which I was able to interact with those women who had been through such atrocities... Um, was it was amazing um and i think my parents understand that if something was to happen to me um you know then i it would have been in the way of in the almost in the way of allah in the way of charity in the way of doing something good um so they're very supportive um and i'm very blessed in that way
0: um one of the many countries that's not only affected by war but also disease um is yemen um the Hadith from the Holy Prophet sallallahu wasallam says that the Ummah, the Muslim Ummah, should be like one body. If one part of the body is in pain, um, then the whole body feels that pain. Um, Yemen is one of those countries where the international uh, rescue committee do aid and work. How bad is the situation in Yemen? Um, from from the work that you do and from what you've heard?
1: It is pretty bad. Um, Yemen has just entered its seventh year of, um, I'm not going to say the seventh year of war, it's the seventh year since the escalation of the war. Um, hmm. And, um, you know, I can run some stats, but, you know, we have to always remember that behind every statistic there are people. Mm. you know for example it's just yemen's I just recorded its highest level ever, ever of uh, malnutrition for children under 5 um 20 million people in the country are going hungry every day famine is looming basically and and the thing is when famine is declared in a country by that by the point it gets to that point it's too late already for 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 millions of people that um that that could die or be affected um and of course, you know, although COVID-19 is in Yemen and there's a spike right now of of cases, it's not a priority for ordinary Yemeni. You know, the priority for them is where are they going to get their next meal from? How are they going to feed their children? Um, so when we do surveys uh, for people in Yemen, when before we do our programming there to see how we can assist them, they always say to us, it's not a priority, it's not a concern for us. Where, where are we going to, how are we going to eat? That's our priority. You know, we did a survey of over 30,000 people Over the last year where it was really concerning to see the sort of the negative coping strategies people are using as a result of not being able to obtain food so either cutting down the number of meals they're having or adults are having to eat less to feed their children or borrow food from people um and like you know coronavirus although might not have affected the country itself um directly it's more sort of like because of global supply chains Uh, being restricted
0: to
1: make things more difficult yeah I mean prices are rising in Yemen so fuel fuel costs are rising all these things have a knock-on effect on how much money you've got to spend at the end of the day um, to buy food for your family in a country which is completely war-torn and then it has secondary effects like health implications in a country where 50% of the hospitals aren't working Um, so it is really bad and and, you know I'd really urge people to to sort of not forget what's going on there even though it might not always pop up in the news every day
0: before moving on to my next point, you know, you mentioned you urge people to not forget about Yemen and to think about other than other than thinking about them. What can people really do for for Yemen? I mean, I feel like you mentioned everything's become more difficult with 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 COVID nineteen. Delivering humanitarian aid has become more difficult for a lot of organisations. shall we'll talk about that. how you know these these organizations are providing aid in in such difficult times but normal people may be watching listening to this podcast um they know about yemen they know you know the fact that you say it's seven years since the war since the escalation of war you know yeah yemen hasn't uh, hasn't been mentioned in news recently maybe because you know there's other things happening that are even less important, but they've just sort of sidelined Yemen mm. and, 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 then the, and their problems. Um, it's been going on for a long time, but what can people do here sitting maybe back home?
1: Firstly, I think, you know, donate to the organisations that are working there. Um, there are so many within our own community, Lady Fatima Trust, uh, WFAID, um, obviously the organisation I work for, International Rescue Committee, um, and I'm in touch with the teams on the ground every day about, about what's going on there. Um, but apart from donating, I think everyone that might be watching has the power to, to do something more, um, you know, depending on where you are and, and how your country is involved with the coalition or the war, um, lobby your government, send letters um, asking them to stop selling arms to Saudi Arabia, for example, or, um, you know, lobby the government to use their position on the global platform. To, to do, to make change. And the thing is that the advantage of living in a democracy and, and having a voice is that you can do things like that. And that's really, really important to keep that pressure on. Um, you know, the UK, for example, has just reduced its overseas aid budget um, from 0.7% to 0.5% of sort of gross national income. And in a in a situation where globally, The world is vulnerable and those countries that really need aid are needing it now more than ever. It is not the time to cut overseas aid budget. So what I'm saying is, you know, we need to use our voice, which we have in countries like this. We're very blessed to be able to raise our voice. We need to continue doing that.
0: How difficult has it been for for humanitarian aid organisations, NGOs to deliver aid during covid Knowing that now AIDS more needed for certain countries, and like you said, you know some countries are are worrying about themselves. I think since the start of COVID, something that I have learned is is is, is the, the the selfishness of certain people mm. during such difficult times. Um, well, you know, <laughs> we had people fighting over toilet paper. Yeah. So, um, and 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 yet we've now shown that we were, were we're selfish beings caring about ourselves Gover- I, you know I, i'm talking in general obviously not specific people but governments only caring about themselves you see the, the 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 problems between for example the uk and the eu i'm hearing all these stories about some vaccines not being delivered mm, and vaccine that nationalism, yeah. so all, all this stuff happening it must be really difficult for, for organizations to actually get the aid where it's needed the most
1: mm, well you know the, the large organizations so f- the International Rescue Committee, for example, they they already have country um, country teams, so we're already in the country. We already have um, you know ma- massive teams in each country in which we operate. Um, so in terms of that, there are not so much capacity issues, but there are definitely are funding issues. So just as I mentioned earlier, you know mm. there, there's been massive funding costs because countries are obviously diverting their funds to sort of their COVID response. Um, but you know it, if, if if you look at it this way in the UK or US or wherever we might be in the West, if if the issues are so bad in countries like that, then you can imagine how bad it is in countries which have no health infrastructure, for example, and how more than ever that funding is needed. And the thing is, in a situation where, if you know, we're, none of us are safe from COVID until all of us are safe from COVID. So until, until everyone in the world is vaccinated, mm. none of us are safe. So there's no point of having na- a vaccine nationalism. There's no point just protecting your own country because in the end all of us are not safe. Um so it is very difficult um and you know we're pushing for uh because you might know that for example uh, most of the western countries have ordered sort of excess vaccines so mm. we're pushing for those to be donated to countries that need it that aren't able to afford it. So for example in Yemen they're saying that they're not going to get the vaccine until another 2 years. Wow. Um and that's the that's the case for many developing countries. Um, because of affordability, because of you know um, a lack of um, uh, sort of volume and how you know there's no supply, um, so you know there's no end in sight for some of these countries when it comes to um, when it comes to COVID at least.
0: And with regards to you traveling, uh, I know you've just returned from Ethiopia. Um, how has that been during COVID?
1: Oh, <laughs> the number of the number of tests I've had to have, I've had about nine tests. in the last year. Um, It's been it's been difficult. Um, Surprisingly, I wasn't asked why I was going when I was when I flew out at the beginning of February. Um, It was it's fine as long as you've you've sort of got all your papers in check and you've had all your tests and everything. Um, But I mean, it is because it's for work. It's been fine. Um, But it's been cumbersome for sure.
0: How bad is the crisis in Ethiopia? And what, what are the main concerns there for people?
1: So, in northern Ethiopia, there's a there's an area called Tigray, um, where the, the Tigrayans are um, fighting against the Ethiopian Defence Force and the Eritrean forces and, and the Amharan forces. Um, it's pretty bad. When I was there, there was sort of no electricity, no Wi-Fi, no reception. So, the operating environment as a humanitarian organisation was very, very difficult. Um, And 1.2 million people just in that region of Ethiopia had been displaced internally. Um, They were being driven out from their little towns. And sometimes they were sort of hiding in um, forests um, for fear of being sort of persecuted. Um, Some people told me that they were living on leaves for a month. Um, You know, women were being attacked and exploited on the journey. Um, And so when they were arriving in these displacement camps, um, they were severely malnourished, they were severely traumatized. um, And it was really bad. And I think the worst issue was at the point that I was there was that there was a massive lack of humanitarian access. Um, We were being blocked from going in to deliver aid. And that's often the situation in in countries like this where there's um, conflict happening, where humanitarian access is really, really difficult and we're not able to reach those in need um that's eased up a little bit now um but there's still a massive need in the country
0: describe us something that you saw or scenario where you saw where you thought you know in, ethiopia, in d- ethiopia okay that that you thought for us living back home we have a, a blessing that we don't even really thank allah for
1: oh so many um So I went to a displaced people's camp where there were just thousands of people. This was an abandoned school where people were coming to stay. There were thousands of people. Um, Over half of them are children. Um, And there was a classroom, if you imagine the classroom, maybe double the size of this room, where 50 people have to sleep all at once, um, you know, on the concrete floor. Um, but there were so many children and you saw the children didn't have shoes. They were super, super skinny, um, you know, matted hair because they wouldn't have had been able to shower for for ages. And, you know, they were just playing with stones outside, um, you know, how you might see, for example, on the streets in Iraq, sometimes when you've got orphans, um, and I, I interviewed a lot of the displaced people. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the men, um, who I spoke to told me about how he was detained how he was beaten up while he was detained. He showed me his, um, you know, he had marks on his back because he'd been beaten up. Another man had been shot, and so, you know, he showed us his bullet wound. Um, So the persecution that these people were going through was really, really horrific. And then the same with the women. Um, I mean, I don't want to sort of trigger anyone, so there's sort of a trigger warning here, I guess. But, you know, women had been widely sexually abused on the way from wherever they've been displaced. And this is very, very normal of humanitarian crises. So whether you've been displaced from, because of a, a flooding or, or a tsunami or an earthquake or because of conflict, women are always, always, always the ones. The victims. Yeah, the victims, are always the worst adversely affected. Um, and so just the the trauma you see in their eyes or when they're talking to you um, is something that I hope no one ever has to imagine.
0: How How do you, you know, seeing these, you know, and and obviously you've been doing this for, for, for quite some time. How do you mentally cope? How's your mental health? Knowing that you,
1: I get, I get asked this question a lot, you know, you know, for me, so they say that 40% of humanitarians need therapy, (laughs) which I don't, (laughs) I don't think I need yet. Alhamdulillah. Do you know what I think it is? I think for me, you know, when I'm, when I'm sitting here in the UK and I see it on the news and I'm not able to do anything and I'm feeling helpless, that that affects me more than when I'm actually out there uh. being able to help, being able to speak to these people and seeing how resilient they are. And one of the things I did want to say was that regardless of all of this, regardless of everything they've been through, anywhere I've been in the world, whether it's the Syrians, the Syrian refugees in Lebanon or Jordan or within Syria, or those women I spoke to in, in, in Mosul or Indonesia, anywhere in the world, or you know the Syrians in Greece, for example, even though their entire lives have been sort of turned upside down within sometimes a matter of minutes, they're still at peace, they're still happy, they're resilient, they're thankful. In Indonesia, for example, a lot of them are Muslim. And, um, you know, you ask them, you know, are you okay? How are you feeling? And they'll just be like, this is the will will of Allah. You know, they're really sort of faithful. They're really sort of... um, And I think that's the thing. Faith brings such resilience to them and it's really a lesson. So I almost feel like given what these people have been through i don't really like to focus on what my mental health is like though i understand why people why i need to um but it it, i'm able to draw lessons and resilience from them i think um and 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 given that i'm able to actually help and be there on the ground um, it gives me it helps me with that with that sort of emotional drain rather than not being able to help and, and being
0: helpless you you mentioned a few times you say when I was talking to them when when they were talking to me when I you do a lot of talking with these with these people and I feel sometimes and this is just my a lot of these people just want to talk sometimes um, is that something that you, you 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 always do when you when you especially with women I'm guessing because yeah. you mentioned that sometimes with, with with the women they'll probably feel more comfortable speaking about what maybe they ha- they went through or mm. even 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 not necessarily ask for for help as in financial help mm. or food but they'd rather just want yeah. sort to of talk
1: so it's it's part of my role to kind of um gather case studies to to see what the need is to see what people and I, and we're obviously very careful about how we phrase questions and mm. and that kind of thing to make sure that we're not sort of bringing up past trauma but it's part of my role to sort of understand what the need is and to see how our work is um helping or impacting them um and yeah, so before I, I, I speak to them, I always explain sort of why I'm speaking to them and, you know, who I am and where I come from. And then I show them pictures of my family or my 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 life back here in the UK, because if I, you know, if I'm sort of delving into their life or if I'm, you know, imposing and asking them to tell me about themselves, then I think it's only right that I, I sort of tell them a bit about myself. Um, but yeah, often, more often than not, they want to, they do want the world to know what's going on. They do want people to know what they've been through. Um, especially if it's conflict, um, but yeah, I think you know talking it out sometimes just helps. And and I, I'm I'm very very blessed because there are so many refugees around the world who, who will raise their hand and and offer me, for example, or for my parents. And you know so many countless all around the world. I don't even know who or, or what their names are sometimes. Yeah, you know, I might not be able to remember. But in that way, I'm very very blessed. And and again, from them, you can really pull resilience from them just because. They're so strong, after, even after everything they've been through.
0: With with regards to 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 the Muslims you mentioned, you mentioned in Indonesia and, and others, you know, then maybe even Christians or even mm-hmm. people. How does God? What's what's God's role within their lives? How do they? You know, you mentioned the the the, the, the ones in Indonesia who it was because of an earthquake and so Indonesia,
1: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So how did they? You know, how how they have they got this? patience this this world to say you know this is alhamdulillah it's a blessing but it's the will of allah do you see that quite a lot i see that
1: in in all the muslim refugees and the non-muslim you know i feel like the less people have the more faithful they are or the more at, at peace they are and this is the thing often except for maybe in syria where they were all quite like middle class wealthy um people before the war started Normally, in in, in most of the crisis situations I've been to, the people that have been displaced or are refugees are already from um, quite poor um, villages or areas. Um, But they're always very happy, sort of at-peace people. Um, And every time, you know, in Indonesia, for example, you know, they all just, they were very sort of resigned to the fact that this is Allah's will. Um, And they they are very accepting of it. And I feel like... um, I feel like there's a, almost a piece of research to be done there about how faith can be used as a resilience tool in situations like this. Um, because everywhere, you know, whether it's Syrian refugees or the Indonesians, you know, everyone is almost thankful or um, very sort of, they just, I don't know what the word is, but they, they, they sort of resign themselves to the fact that this is Allah's will and they, they, they're accepting it and they're happy and they're, they're, um, they're at peace with it.
0: Tawakkul maybe.
1: Tawakkul, yeah, Tawakkul, absolutely.
0: They they leave everything in Allah's hands, which yeah. is quite difficult sometimes. You know, I. P-
1: but it puts things into perspective. Uh-huh. Like when I'm sitting here with my, you know, silly problems in the UK, it really mm. makes me think back, and 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 it makes me really put. It really grounds me. I think it really mm. makes me look at things in a different way because, comparatively, and I know we, I don't want to say that we are sort of feeding off their misery or or you know. Um, making myself feel better through their misery of course not but it definitely puts things into perspective given that they can be thankful having lost everything including family members Mm. their business their lives their homes um, and they can still be thankful you know and i have everything alhamdulillah and
0: i'm not so it really helps put things into perspective. You know, someone might say, you know, how, how did Madeha survive without internet in Ethiopia?
1: It was liberating, honestly. Because <laughs> was, some, yeah, yeah.
0: Not sometimes when WhatsApp or Instagram is down, everyone's like, oh no, WhatsApp's <laughs> not working. What am I going to do with <laughs> yeah. my life now? Yeah. And then you're there without with that internet. And I'm yeah. guessing no one really thinks well, of it, that as a problem back there.
1: Yeah, well, it was surprising. It, it was liberating, but surprisingly crippling. Like, you know, come 7pm, I was sat in the dark. In the room, I was like, "Okay, what do I do now?" Because you know there was nothing to do. I couldn't use my laptop, couldn't use my phone because I was trying to conserve battery. But it was liberating, honestly. Um, those few days, I, you know, I felt more at peace than. There's something about always having access, always being online. I think that is, it messes with your mind. And I think not having it internet it for those few days was actually quite liberating.
0: With with regards to the the refugee crisis, I mean, a few years ago when. When there was the surge of refugees trying to get into europe mm-hmm. um through turkey and other countries and you know we saw all those images and videos of 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 the, of the real crisis i mean the the problem of refugees uh, the problem of, of migrants has been something that's you know ever since i think humanity um were created and you know during the life of the holy prophet he migrated uh, we can say as, a, as a seeking refuge right. from Mecca because he was and they, the Quraysh wanted to kill him, so he, he he wanted to seek refuge. Before him, he sent some some migra- some of his companions as those um, first to do the migration from uh, Mecca to Abyssinia, mm-hmm. Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. What did they, Ethiopia, uh, the likes of Jafar al-Tayyar, and then he obviously migrated to Medina. Um, we saw, we saw um, a few years ago, This, you know, this all over the news, but recently I've noticed it's as if they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So as if they, all these refugees that were stuck in them. Greece, mm-hmm. that's my, where okay. are, it's as if, it's as if we, they've all, they've all now got homes and they're okay. and. Oh, no,
1: no. Well, we just we just um, you visited
0: Greece what year two thousand
1: sixteen at okay. the height of the crisis five years ago yeah uh, wow it's been five years yeah mm. um, yeah still
0: there
1: many of them are yes um, so it, it was it was it was interesting when I was there the the situation every day was changing I was on the island of Lesfos, which was on the news quite a lot um, at the time I was actually living in Sweden where which also had uh, I think they're taken in. Hundred sixty thousand Syrian refugees, and all my friends were in my, for example, my Swedish class were were, were Syrian refugees, um, and again, like so many stories of, of resilience there. But um, we just commemorated ten years of that war. Um, what was it two weeks ago? I think now ten years since the war started, um, and no, there there are still so many in in Les Vos. so I don't know if you heard that there was a massive fire that destroyed one yeah. of the biggest camps a couple of couple of weeks ago so as well. Um, and they were moved from one camp to another but those people are still there um you know many have been rehomed or or been able to seek asylum but many are still there and this is the, this is the way the news cycle works sort of moves from one crisis to another and then it gets for- forgotten until something massive happens, and it might spike in the news for a day or two and then it gets forgotten
0: again. yeah I, I came as a refugee obviously not in such circumstances where you know we had to come on a ball and go through a lot of uh, a lot of difficulty um obviously fleeing from from iraq uh, and, and 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 the regime of saddam alhamdulillah you know i had the the privilege of coming to the uk studying here and I, I got it easy compared to the refugees that are that you know you know in those days maybe back in the 90s it was easier to get to, to get uh, asylum and and, and, re- and get a refugee status but now it's become more difficult mm. because you know every country is putting a limit to how many refugees they take in um, and like you said a lot of them are, are still stuck there what about you know them returning how what's the possibility of some of these refugees actually returning home or is you the,
1: mean willingly or being be, forced oh, to
0: willingly forced to obviously no because um, but, um, are there are there any that are, are willingly
1: i think there or, would be um but you see it depends because you know you know as, as we always say, people don't leave their home unless there's some there's something they're really running from um because of the politics of the situation, if we're talking about Syria in particular, it might be that them going back is dangerous for them um or that they somehow feel that being in being in the West or being in Europe is going to be better for them economically or they're able to make a better life um which is, which is almost difficult to believe, given how hostile some, some of the Europeans are towards them or, you know, not, not wanting to take them in. Um, but, but, but naturally for them, they feel like that's still better than what's back home. Um, so, you know, there's, no, there's nothing stopping them from going back home, but it's about them not wanting to for whatever reason they fled from there in the first place.
0: And obviously now there's no opportunity for it. Is there, are there any countries taking refugees now? Or?
1: There are. Um, everyone, so, so, for example, you know, in the US, uh, the Trump administration had cut down the refugee int- intake every year from like hundreds of thousands to 15,000. The Biden administration um, uh, pledged to bring it back up to 125,000. That still hasn't happened, even though he's been in office for a few months. Um so yeah, but what is one hundred and twenty-five thousand comparatively to the millions, millions that need refuge? You know, In that's like you know the U.S. is a massive economy, it's a massive country. Um, there are countries taking refugees, but just not nearly as many as 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 is needed. Um, so it remains to be seen what happens, I guess.
0: And the and the refugee the refugee camps at the Lebanese um, Jordanian. Borders that's still there. I'm guessing oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that the consists of mostly Syrians or
1: Palestinians and Syrians. So the ones in Leb in depends on where, but the ones in Jordan, for example, that I visited, they don't. They're not the typical refugee camps where they're tents. They're sort of buildings, mm. like a whole whole towns of of actual brick brick or mortar, or whatever you want to call it, buildings. Um, but Often in those countries, the refugees don't have any rights. They're not able to work, they're not able to get education. So whole generations of children are growing up either either uh, Palestinian or, or Syrian without any sort of education or, 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 or means of livelihood um, in these massive sprawling camps around the world.
0: Muslim refugees in a Muslim country and yet they don't have any rights.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, I guess, even for the host country because as it is for their host, for their own citizens they don't have enough opportunities but I mean f- as far as I'm concerned you know we're all global citizens there's no sort of us and them mm. but um, I guess from a national point of view those looking out for their own, own sort of agenda will want to look after their own first
0: Do you think there's, there's there's a problem because these are Muslim refugees that they're not maybe what or is that has faith, yeah, faith got nothing to do with with, with, with them being refugees? It's,
1: it's difficult to say, maybe. Well, yeah, I mean, well, definitely. I mean, in in some countries like, you know, in Sweden when I was there, or, you know, the far-right movement here in the UK definitely plays a part. It just, you know, it depends on the, on the government in question, doesn't it? Um, in terms of how anti-Muslim or how far-right their rhetoric is. Um, and, I mean, you know, got to be careful there what I say, but, <laughs> you know... It, there was an announcement a few days ago talking about immigration and asylum and how there's going to be stricter measures and it just goes to show the more that it just i just feel like more and more and more policies to do with the sort of poor or less privileged there's just there's just none you know all the policies are catered towards those that are wealthy and privileged and you know white upper class um and you know whether it's brexit or whether it's um austerity or, um whether it 's asylum and immigration we seem to be going backwards as a country and that 's something i just don 't understand um and i 'm not sure whether that's something to do with the those re- those refugees being particularly Muslim or whether it's something else but also it's it's you know they're not we're not letting in um uh refugees that are even from eastern europe for example so and they're not muslim so i'm not sure it's anything to do with that in particular but i definitely think it plays a part a small part yeah uh, it
0: plays a part but you know i've i've heard from some people that i used to work with that that would say you know things like you know is that the refugees are running away from muslim dictators there's Muslim countries all, all around that aren't welcoming these refugees. Mm-hmm. You know, why is it now a, become a problem for the West mm-hmm. when you know their own Muslim countries, neighboring countries, are in conflict with each other? One, two, they're not welcoming each other. They're running away from uh, from.
1: But why are we seeing refugees? by Why are we ad- identifying refugees as their faith? They're still just they're just yeah. people. They're refugees. Has What's shuma- it got to do with them being humanity Muslim? Humanity
0: died you think working it being you know now working for how many years in humanitarian almost, almost 10 years almost 10 years do yeah. you feel every year things are getting worse or is there an improvement when it comes to uh,
1: you know I see things like the Rohingya genocide and I was in Bangladesh for the when the Rohingyas were coming over the border back mm. in 2017 uh, from Myanmar or I see what's happening to the, to the Uyghurs or I saw you know you know what's happening to you know some, you know, Shia's, Pakistanis, for example. And every time, you know, we just um, commemorated, you know, the Bosnian genocide or the Rwandan genocide or the Holocaust. And every time we commemorate those, we say, oh, you know, we're never going to let this happen again. But Mm -hmm. we're letting it happen again. It's happening, you know, it's happening right now under our noses. And I just feel like we're all regurgitating the same rhetoric and, you know, we're not really improving anything. Um, And in the 10 years, um, you know, whether it's climate change or government or policies or what, no, I wouldn't say anything's improved. It's got worse. I'm not sure if it's got worse, but it's definitely not improved. Um, You know, obviously, you know, if you take America or the US, America or the UK, the the Trump administration definitely was going backwards. I feel like the government here are going backwards um, in in, in sort of very nationalistic policies. Um, But yeah, I I don't, you know... Getting worse or getting better, I don't know. But it's definitely not. It's definitely not getting better. It's not. No, it's not getting better. If,
0: if yeah. it, even if it's not getting worse, which comes, you know, so humanity as a concept, where as al Mu'minin Ali Salam says that you know, you're you're either a brother in faith of someone or he's your equal brother in humanity. humanity yeah. Um. That sort of has died down because yeah. now we pick and choose who we who yeah. we want to support. Agreed. and um, um,
1: but you know, I guess you know. You said that when um, when the pandemic hit, mm. um, you, you saw a level of selfishness, which, mm. I, which I definitely agree with. But I also saw a level of selflessness mm-hmm. in sure, in yeah. the way that people came out to try and help I'm or sure, assist. I'm sure. um, but yeah, as as a global community, I, I would definitely agree that the, the the brother in faith and equal in humanity has definitely died down. Um, And I think, you know, there are some groups that will only want to help themselves or their own communities. And this is the thing, like even within our communities, I'm really against the sort of nationalism that we see within our communities that, you know, um, Iraqis will only help Iraqis and Pakistanis will only help Pakistanis and Khojas will only help Khojas and Iranians will only help Iranians and the list goes on. And I just feel like, you know what, the Quran doesn't say if you save one Iraqi or Hura or Pakistani life, you save what you save humanity. So if you save one life, you save humanity. It doesn't it doesn't put a sort of restriction to it, um, and I think that we need to sort of get out of that bubble because you know I feel like even if you just look at the event of Karbala, for example, the different sort of nationalities and faiths and everyone that that was involved, I feel like it's a lesson for all of us, um, and I think we need to apply that across the board, whether it's our charity or who we welcome into our mosque. Um, yeah, gone a bit of tangent there. No, but, no, but yeah. it's, it's,
0: good, it's good you mentioned this because uh, I was I was I've actually wrote that down now before you mentioned it which is we've become very selective who we support and. um you know as you said you know i'll only support my own people mm. and the what i'll say in the back of my mind is because they you know they're my people so i'll help them they need the help and then i'll help others but that i'll help others never ends up happening because it goes back to to our divide when it comes to our centers where we you know we have uh, centers that are only allocated for a certain ethnic group within the same faith um, and I feel that that problem sort of will always exist
1: does it I don't I don't know does it only I mean I feel like I've only seen that in the UK
0: oh okay is it
1: I feel I, I think so like it, some parts of America so my sister lives in Texas for example in a the city there there's like five centers in Houston and um, they all have mixed centers mm. um I think in 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 Nairobi where i'm about to move to um i'm pretty sure pakistanis and iranians also attend that center um okay. you know yeah,
0: I, i've seen that in some parts of the us yeah. where it's a community with different
1: it's a shame that that's the case in the uk because i feel like the uk sort of um the the sort of level of social justice that we're seeing amongst the youth in the uk in, you know is really something to sort of aspire towards and i think those youth could move forward and try and make Make it a bit more you know mixed um in terms of in terms of the different ethnicities um you know mixing together i think there's so much value to be added um with that
0: with, with regards to you know uh, how you pick which international aid group you work with you know i noticed you know you were with the islamic relief muslim aid both muslim uh NGOs, but at the same time you were also with
1: wfaid which was a shia
0: Shiite group yeah. and then but you don't s- certainly pick say oh I'm only going to work with these people because they're Muslim oh I no will. no no
1: no not at all I mean I've worked for you know Mus- uh, Malaria Consortium and yeah. um, now International Rescue Committee which isn't Muslim at all um, I guess in some ways I sort of just fell into it the, in, in the journey that I took um, but yeah for me it, do- it doesn't because every international organisation has to work on the principles of neutrality and impartiality Um where they don't pick and choose who they help even if they work on principles of faith so for example even christian aid um works on principles of faith of mercy and compassion and helping people but they're not allowed to discriminate in terms of who they pick to help um so for me it wasn't it, It's it's more about sort of the organization where i feel like the most impact can be had um, and you know I just started this role at the International Rescue Committee about six months ago, and I feel very, very blessed to have this position because it's one of the the biggest NGOs in the world, and it has a massive footprint. Um, and I'm really sort of blessed to be able to to see the level of work that they do. So, for example, you know they've got such influence where they're able to influence you know U.S. government policy to um, you know reverse certain policies, or we're able to put that pressure because of the impact that we have. And um, that's the way I would choose who I work with and it's definitely nothing to do with faith
0: S- some people recently um, have put down into helping maybe certain certain um, charities and um, without going into too much details but there was a case where the one charity was was found to have some some corruption and you know sort of all over social media with, with certain communities my question: th- Does it exist corruption within charities?
1: Um, yeah. So I, I, and am an, uh, a trustee of the Muslim Charities Forum, and one of the things, you know, we do is is try and help the Muslim charity sector mm. um, with governance, or like ensuring that they're compliant, because obviously the UK has a Charity Commission which takes care of and overlooks all of this and makes sure that, you know, there's no financial ir- irregularities, etc. It definitely does happen and i think as a although there's fantastic work being done by the muslim charity sector both um you know in in the wider muslim charity sector as a whole whether it's sunni or shia or whatever else there's great work being done but i think that we're still behind the curve in comparison to the rest of the charities in how we operate in the professionalism with, with which we operate in making sure that we have we are fo- uh, following governance protocols and um the right operational kind of frameworks to be compliant. You know, we need to make sure we've got safeguarding policies and money laundering policies and, you know, um the way in which we work needs to definitely be more professionalized. I've I've worked in now, what is it, one, two, four Muslim charities, two of the biggest Sunni charities and one of one um one of the one of the biggest, I guess, Shia charities. And um, you know, all of them are striving to be better and that that's definitely the way to go. And I and I think, um, you know, we all need to keep on trying to improve. And the thing is, being a trustee is a massive responsibility because you're basically running the whole charity or you're responsible for running the charity and you're responsible for people's amana because they give you the money and they trust you to spend it the right way.
0: So why are Muslim charities? So, you know, you mentioned that we are far behind other charities. what's the reason uh, is it because uh from wh- why aren't they as professional as maybe i don't know if that's the right time to use but yeah
1: i mean i, I i'm probably gonna get <laughs> in i mean I, I wouldn't say they're not as professional i think i think you know often we we we, we rely on our intentions a lot uh-huh. oh I know our intentions are good so it's okay but no we're also in a in a in a, in a government or in, under a framework where we have to comply Um, And I think often we sort of treat organisations like a charity or or like a like a family, I mean, or we just rely on goodwill. Um, But you can't rely on goodwill when you've got sort of audits and financial trails to to submit to to the charity commission. Um, I don't really have a reason for why. I think I think, Mm -hmm. you know, there's too much reliance on goodwill. um, And there's and the intentions are great to want to help people. But it has to be backed up by you know the right level of professionalism in terms of compliance as well.
0: Well, but on the on the ground, you know, you know, these people are vulnerable. Mm. Uh, a lot of these people that you know, aid groups go out and support. Um, from your experience, is there is there are there any issues with with the aid that they receive? Or are they is there any misuse of of of, of any of the aid that they're, they're getting on the ground? Are some maybe Women being mistreated, maybe. Or I've not children, seen that or, personally, no. Or heard of it? That doesn't mean you. Have yeah, yeah.
1: Um, you know, I think you know. If I give you some examples of what I meant when I said that we're still behind the curve. Yeah. So you know, one of the examples is the wider charity sector, the non-Muslim charity sector, is moving now towards empowering those people that need help, so getting them back on their own feet. I feel like the Muslim charity sector we're still stuck on handing out food baskets. You know, you know, there's that saying where if you teach a man to, it's better to teach a man to fish than give him a fish. Mm. We're still giving people fish, mm. you know, or um, we're still doing those sort of very tokenistic um, aid aid work, you know, building a well instead of building a water system in a village that will help the whole village with their washing and their cleaning and their farming and their irrigation. Um, building a well, a shallow well that will, you know, dry up after five years is of no use to anyone. Um, and I think, I think you know, we that's that's the way in which we're behind. And I think you know, in, in, in terms of answering your question of you know, have I seen that level of corruption? I haven't seen that, but I've definitely seen the unwillingness to sort of change in the way in which we're working in as a sector, because our because our Muslim audience or our supporters, the Muslim community, won't understand. Wait, why why should I have to pay for this system? I don't understand. You know, I'd ri- much rather pay for a well. Where I'll get the you know thawab for making you know quenching the thirst of ten people. Do you do you know what I mean? Mm. Like for them, if I give a you know sixty pounds for a Ramadan food basket, for me that's tangible. I'm able to understand that and instead of giving this person some tools to lift themselves out of poverty. You know, people want to see. So we're behind
0: in that aspect. Yeah,
1: you know, people want to see where their money is going tangibly, and they maybe don't have the. Or I think it's a charity's sort of job to to sort of explain you know that we need to have foresight you know if you if you give these people the tools now in five years time they won't need our charity um there's no point in just giving them a food basket what uh, we what what often often find even in the wider charity sector is that you know they'll they'll give food baskets and often people just sell sell the food because there's more important things they need to buy um so i just think that you know we need then we need to catch up and, and the commun- Muslim community as a whole needs to sort of catch up in that way.
0: Isn't that to a certain degree a level of corruption then?
1: I mean I guess Rather you could than look than use, at
0: that the use the money, for example, <coughs> to build a water system mm-hmm. that's sort of misuse of, 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 of money when you're building maybe a well. I don't know.
1: I'm not saying it's not I'm not saying a well's not helpful. It is helpful. It's just <coughs> sorry. It's just not as helpful as it would be, you know, for building a water system. Mm. Um And this is the thing, if you don't have the right checks, you know, trust is great. It's an amazing thing. And we should always, we should should trust people. But, you know, end to end from the person that's donating £10 here Mm. to the very end where that £10, the equivalent of that £10 gets to that, I don't know, Iraqi child or Mm. whatever it is there are so many people in the interim and you might not be able to trust anyone. Or even if it's not about trust, there might be something, some kind of miscommunication. And if you don't have all the checks and balances in place from A to Z, then something might go wrong. That, that what is it, one million pounds you said that went missing or mm. what, however much it is, That is, I'm sure it wasn't because of it, I'm sure it was intentional. But the fact is that the, the checks and balances weren't in place mm. for that to be prevented. And I think it's because we are... We do treat our charities like a family or because we have too much goodwill sometimes that you know those checks and balances aren't in place where they need to be
0: there's there's a there's a there was a joke that was going around a few years ago they said the prime minister in iraq um as he was out he saw someone begging for and then he stopped and he asked him what's wrong you know why are you begging? he said i don't have any money so he said you know what take his name we're going to send him some money Mm. So he went back to his office um, and he got a million dollars or whatever, a million Iraq dinars, whatever, and he gave it to his one of the ministers and said, pass it on to this beggar. The minister gave it to one of the advisors. The advisors gave it to, I don't know, someone else. And then it was just passed on. By the time the, they reached the beggar that was begging, they said the the delivery man the Mm -hmm. messenger messenger came to him and said the prime minister sends his salam and says he'll remember you in his (laughs) da'as there you go so by the time it reached him everyone took out their car is there such you know you i'm only asking this because you mentioned that if if someone donates 10 pounds by the time it gets to the iraqi orphan is is there such corruption where there's you know
1: there's two things here. obviously like the intermediary sort of levels you know you need to pay the driver you need to pay administration costs, you need to pay for electricity, you need to pay for fuel. Those are not things I would call corruption. Those are those are running costs or so those are administration costs. Does does corruption happen? Of course it happens. It happens everywhere, whether it's Muslim or non Muslim. And by the way, I guess I should I should disclaim and say that the Muslim judge sector is doing a fantastic job. Of and, course. I feel, of course. and I feel and I feel like, you know, we as Muslims sometimes have a complex that we're not good enough or we're not doing as well. Mm. In some cases we're not, as I mentioned. Mm. In some cases we really are. We are yeah. Um, But given that we're in an environment where we're being scrutinised more than ever, because there is such Islamophobic rhetoric, you know, in the world, we need to do better, is what I was trying to say. Mm. Um, So yeah, there is corruption. but That corruption exists in non-Muslim charities too.
0: Is there a sense of nepotism within charities (laughs) where this person is related to this person, so he gets the job, this person is related to that person, so he gets the job, he becomes the secretary, he becomes the treasurer, he becomes... And it's not the right people in the right roles.
1: I mean, categorically, I can say, yeah, to that. But I I mean, yeah, (laughs) 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 I I can't even um, deny that. No, yeah, yeah, there is. And again, because I said, you know, I said to you, we treat our charities like a family. And yeah, because literally we we treat it like a charity.
0: Literally. Yeah. Son.
1: Son, uncle, brother, cousin. But, you know, uh, because it might be difficult to attract the right talent, but do we even try?
0: Mm. You know, do you, is that is that across the board? I think so. Within what we're talking here, Muslim charities. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So this is a sense of corruption then, because you it's not the right putting b-
1: words you know. that you're going to get me into trouble.
0: No, no, I'm just <laughs> trying to say, I'm just trying to understand that because you know, you you we really need the right people in the right positions. Yeah, we do. You mm. know the and oh. alim. A scholar and religion is good in fiqh in his jurisprudence and maybe theology, that's all he's going to be. But you can't give him, for example, a role and if, if he hasn't studied, obviously, hmm. a role in finance or to be a treasurer when he hasn't really studied this field, there needs to be someone that has studied within uh, economics or something within the finance sector who gets that role. Why
1: do we treat charities any different to businesses? If in my, in my, you know, from my point of view, a charity should be treated with more weight. People's businesses because people are giving you money.
0: It's amana. It's amana, yeah, yeah.
1: right? Then he's like, why are we treating it like a joke? If there is nepotism, if there is this corruption, if you are just giving a job to your brother who is not, you know, nearly qualified and has no clue about accounting, there's gonna you're gonna be answerable for that. If mm. if that money goes misused, I'm not saying it does. Yeah. I'm just saying if it does, mm. um, yeah, that, that, that definitely takes the, place. The,
0: I think that's the problem that. Amir al-Mu'minin السلام, faced the most when he became the political caliph which was certain people thought they were going to get government roles because they are related to Imam Ali alayhi salam or because they were close to the prophet because of that nearness they had to the prophet they thought when Imam Ali salam became the caliph that's why you know a lot of people say you know was Imam Ali really a good politician politician if within four years and nine months there was three civil wars whereas in previous uh governments there wasn't any so you know there's a there's a problem here Within, within Imam Ali. That's not the case. The problem was that Imam Ali السلام, was just and fair. This is it. And people didn't like that. They didn't like his justice. He was just with his own brother. He was just with his own cousins who thought they could get a government role just because they are related to him.
1: I think this is it, this is it isn't it? I think justice is sometimes a very bitter pill for people to swallow. And, and that's why in there's a, that line in the Quran that says, you know, oh, you believe St- f- uh, stand firmly for justice, even if it be against yourself or your kin or your uh your kith and mm. this is the thing often to actually be able to be really just you have to you have to give bitter truths that people are not happy with, whether that's your friend or your or your family um and that's really a lesson to take i think
0: definitely i don't want to get into too much trouble um let's let's move to the work that you do in the u k mm. um believe it or not you also do charity work in the UK Mashallah which um, I mentioned also with regards to Grenfell and also gender justice Mm. Grenfell we all know about heard about in the news what do you do with regards to that before you move to the gender justice
1: so I was there the morning of the fire uh, um, in June uh, was it 2017.
0: Yeah, Ramadan, yeah, three years ago. Yeah, Shah Ramadan, yeah,
1: very, very hot day. Mm. I think Maghrib was like 10 o'clock. Uh, got there the morning of the fire. It was just, it was complete chaos. Um, you know, that's, I was working at Muslim Aid at that point and, uh, you know, working on international disasters, you expect to see sort of that level of chaos in, in, in countries which don't have the right level of infrastructure or government or whatever else you might want to call it. But to see that on our own doorstep here in the UK was just something sure. that none of us were expecting. Um, it was just, there was just no coordination. There was, you know, no n- no one knew what was going on. I remember speaking to this one man, and this is another story of resilience uh, um, I wanted to share with you. I was speaking to this one man whose uh, family lived on the 23rd floor of the tower. Mm. Um, and, you know, he had his head in his hand when I approached him. And I said to him, brother, are you Okay. And he goes yeah I, I i don't i can't find my brother and his family i don't know where they are they live on the 23rd floor with me so i was like okay and uh i said okay first of all let me get you a glass of water and he goes no no, no i'm fasting i said i think on this occasion it might be okay you could tell that he had smoke on him or like smoke uh like black sort of ash on his face mm. i mean i hope it wasn't you know uh haram or not okay for me to say but i offered him water. i said i think on this occasion it's okay to you for you to maybe Take a sip of water, you know. You, you, you know, you've lost your family. You've been through massive trauma, and he, he would refuse to break his fast. He's like, no, 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 I'm fasting, I'm fasting. And can you just imagine? He, his, his home is on fire, you know. He lost his family, and he refuses to sort of. He still got that faith and that resilience. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, I spoke to him. I spoke to many many people um, that were um, had escaped from the tower, and they had no idea what was going on. There was no sort of local authority that was able to help them and give them information um anyway so our our, our organization had, had been helping with sort of giving them advice and support and and sort of food and making sure that there's halal food because so many of them were muslim or um the women needed you know faith-sensitive clothing because many of them were muslim too and being a muslim community or muslim-based organization was really helpful there and following that um incident we produced a report called Mind the Gap, which basically spoke about how faith communities and local voluntary communities are able to fill the gap where local authority is not, because we have that knowledge of, you know, what's happening. You know, we have the faith sensitivities, the 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 communities trust us. Um, and then following that, there was like a National Critical Incident Response Unit that was set up. And then now there's a whole body that will look to uh, re- help respond when there's national disasters around in, in the UK off the back of that. Um, so that was a really successful campaign.
0: The gender problem seems to be one that's not just within the Muslim community, but within hmm. uh, the wider society. And you um, do gender justice, hmm. you're, you're part of this group. What, what is that about? And is that only within the, the Muslim community or is that for the wider society as well?
1: So I think culturally, Islamic culture, if you want to call it, um, We've sort of lost what Islam or the Prophet came to us with, uh, and the respect that the Prophet had for for women and girls, and um, you know the policies he kind of came with, and you know you can see that in the way that he treated his daughter, or the the policies he sort of implemented about um, how femicide or girls that were being buried when they were born, how, how he abolished that kind of practice, um, and there is a movement um, that. Has been i guess started or led by um a lady called shaheen ashraf in islamic relief um, who uh, had written the gender justice declaration where within our humanitarian work we look to make sure that we're not leaving behind women so for example um, the practice of fgm or the practice of early child marriage we've sort of looked at that through islamic lens of whether it's shia sunni scholars and seen that actually, I mean, this is a very um, controversial sort of theological discussion. But actually, is it okay to marry a nine-year-old girl off if she isn't ready, whether yeah. it's whether it's physically or emotionally, or, 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 yeah. or, or you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all of this has been in this in this written in this declaration, and the way in which we respond in our humanitarian response is all included in that
0: very important is this just for within the uk or is this so
1: no it's something that's being tried to uh, we're trying to sort of implement it globally and we're trying to get more muslim charities to sign on to this declaration um you know one of the things you know as an example in somalia fgm is a massive practice mm. um and trying to sort of address communities and you know using somali communities to sort of explain to Somali community so it's not like we're here coming from the west and telling you what to do we're trying to change behaviors and attitudes because the number of women and children that are affected as a result and die or or, you know because of all of these really inhumane practices sometimes is really really bad um you know the the complications at birth you know if a girl gets married at nine and she she gets pregnant and you know she might die in childbirth or have complications and then it's just the quality of life after that is really really difficult So just trying to like educate without sort of offending people um, about these different issues that are to do with women and girls.
0: I think, yeah, the gender justice um, issue is quite big. So I'm really glad that you guys are doing some work on on that. And it's a topic that needs to be addressed. The conversations need to take place. Um, There's a problem everywhere, Mm. whether it's in the Muslim communities or the wider society, with with gender issues
1: yeah I mean one of the things we've done at the International Rescue Committee is during the pandemic we did a we did a report where we interviewed like uh, women across 15 countries in Africa and nine and 73 percent of them so almost three quarters of them said that they'd experienced um, violence or increased domestic violence over the course of the pandemic um, and this is what I meant when I said that women, no matter what the disaster is, whether it's even just being stuck at home, you know, women are more affected than men.
0: Well, I'd like to thank you for your time today. Um, there's so much more we could we could speak about, but Inshallah um, for the future. Uh, we know you're going to relocate to nairobi so we wish you all the best um, why are you relocating by the way
1: so my uh, portfolio is uh, 23 countries in africa and yemen so i feel like you know to be in the region and to work and live from there is um is better um it's better to sort of be in the context in which i'm working so at least for a few years at the start and we'll see where life takes me
0: thank you for your time uh, we wish you the best uh, for the future inshallah we we pray that um
1: before you end just be like um if anyone
0: doesn't want to support your work where can they find you Good point. here at progeny we want to wish you the best uh inshallah you mentioned something really beautiful and at the start which was um you're in the dua the prayers of so many people you and your family so inshallah that continues you'll be in our duas um before we end I'd like to ask if someone wants to get in touch with yourself with regarding to I don't know any aid they can they can support and what they can do how will they go about doing so
1: um I'm on Twitter okay. MADZ underscore Raza R-A-Z-A they send me a message on there um I can I'll give you my um Instagram or they can email me um or if you want to donate to the charity I work for www.rescue.org
0: Thank you very much. We'll add those details on the bottom, um, on the description of this video, inshallah. And we wish you all the best. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Salaam.